Hello and welcome to Something Who podcast episode 49. I'm Richard and in this episode I'm chatting with writer and radio producer Paul Hayes. So hello Paul and welcome to Something Who. Hello Richard, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's it's, it's very kind of you and a great honour to be here. <laughs> thank you. So you, you've written a book called The Long Game, 1996 to 2003, the inside story of how the BBC brought back Doctor Who. And that's coming out from Ten Acre Films very soon in, in November, I believe. Yes, the 1st of November, yeah. Brilliant. And I guess, I mean, the title, one would imagine, is pretty clear. But is, is there a sort of opening premise that you want to discuss with us? You know, sort of just tell us a little bit more about what's in your book. Yes, well, the idea behind it was it, it was a book I wanted to read and it didn't seem to exist. So I decided I would just have to write it. And the idea is to tell the story of how we went from May 1996, the aftermath of the TV movie, mm-hmm. to September 2003, the point at which Doctor Who was recommissioned, and telling the story of, well, various things really, telling the story of the background and context of what happened at the BBC through those years, the changes at BBC One, the drama department, all across the corporation really, and how those changes affected and uh, helped to bring about what happened with the revival of Doctor Who, so providing a lot of that background that Doctor Who sources don't necessarily often go into, Mm -hmm. uh, how the careers of the people who ended up bringing the show back got them to that point in those places, some of the other attempts at revivals that happened through those years for either film or television, the rise of the the online services, the BBC Doctor Who website, which became a very important part of the story, all these different elements which I felt there were all kinds of things that told bits of this story, things like the Doctor Forever documentary, The Unquiet Dead, on the Green Death special edition, Cavan Scott's articles in Doctor Who magazine in 2013. All kinds of different interviews and articles and documentaries had told bits and different strands of this story, but I never felt there was something that drew it all together in one narrative, if I can talk about it very grandly like that. So that's basically what I've attempted to do in this book, tell the story of all the different strands that were happening in those seven years and provide a bit of background and context as to how it all happened and why. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's interesting. It's, it, it's a fascinating story. We've, we, we've seen, I think, quite a lot of people talking about how the TV movie sort of got itself off the ground and looking at that sort of previous seven-year period. But as you say, perhaps not so many looking at this one. So, so yeah, I, I'm sure we're all very interested to read about that. I, I was thinking perhaps before we get you know, fully into that discussion, it might be interesting to talk to you about about how and when you, you came across Doctor Who and, and, and how long you've been a fan of the show. Well, like a lot of people in the UK, I think, uh, I, I couldn't really tell you how I came across Doctor <laughs> Who because it's just always been a part of my life. It's always been there. I was born in 1984, February 1984, I, I think midway between the two episodes of Resurrection of the Daleks. I think that's my uh, sort of era of Doctor Who, if you want to date right. me when I was born. I'm pretty convinced, this may be a false memory, but I'm pretty convinced that my first ever memory from the age of about two and a half, I must have been, is the TARDIS being taken into the Time Lord ship at the beginning of the Trial of a Time Lord. Oh, yeah. Because I had definitely seen that, or I had a memory of having seen it when I saw the story on video. I got it for Christmas when I was nine in 1993. Right. uh, But I certainly have memories of watching the McCoy era, seasons 24, 25, 26. We would... We would all watch that as a family together, and I've got lots of memories of, of being three, four, five years old and watching those stories. Things like the first proper book I ever read, you know, proper 
quote-unquote grown-up book I ever read was the novelization of Remembrance of the Daleks. I can remember, I think I was six when that came out, and I remember being in Volume 1 bookshop in Worthing in West Sussex, and uh, my dad saying, oh, I think my dad had gone in there to buy a book, and I was with him, and he said, oh, I'll buy you a book. What book would you like? And picked that one, I think because I remembered the cover provoked memories of seeing it on tv so and in the early 90s you had the repeats on bbc2 uh you know um the pilot in 91 then the time meddler mind robber sea devils genesis all of that 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 run in the early 90s on bbc2 and all and just yeah i've i've always been a doctor who fan i think i mean i describe it a bit like i mean i know it's a bit you're on dodgy ground comparing it to uh to religion it's the closest thing some of us have to religion, I think. But there's that. I always think of that Dar O'Brien routine when he talks about being an atheist. Still Catholic, though. You know, and he said talks about how you could run away and join the Taliban and you would merely be regarded as a very bad Catholic. And that's kind of how I feel about Doctor Who fandom. Yeah. It's a bit like that. And the other thing I always compare it to is if someone says about, oh, God, can you explain why you're a Doctor Who fan? I think the best book to explain why someone is a Doctor Who fan is, conversely... Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby because it explains that whole process of being a fan so well. So, yeah, yeah, it's a cross between uh, religion and football fandom. You're you're sort of born into it. You don't have a choice about it in some ways. And it's just always a part of you and always there, if that makes sense. It doesn't sound too mad. Sure. Yeah, as I was listening to you, I, I started to think, oh... What a bad time to be born into into fandom because because the show went off the air so quickly and yet and then again I, I, as you were talking about it I thought actually what a great time because of course all the videos were coming out and as you say there were these repeat seasons so to some extent I suppose you didn't have an an ongoing thread of Doctor Who you know in your older childhood but you had much better access I suppose to the history of this show than you know I'm I'm probably what fifteen or twenty years older and and, and growing up in that period the, the the show was always on but there was almost no way of accessing the past. Yeah, it it is kind of a scattergun approach, but I don't think that's necessarily unusual in fandom. I think even fans who grew up perhaps through the 70s and 80s, while it was still on, would have, you know, had a kind of scattergun approach to history through the target novelizations that were available and that kind of thing. But I think one of the things that really always fascinated me about it as a young child, when I was really becoming beguiled by it, was just this sense that it was something with such a long history mm. and it was like it was like a it was like mythology you could get little tantalizing glimpses of it i remember as a child having these very dim and distant memories and i can remember talking to my i think my brother or sister about this of i remember saying this uh, having these half barely formed memories of quote the one who dressed like Rupert Bear, which was my childhood very early memory of Colin Baker's outfit. I had right, this kind of yes. impression of the kind of cravat and the red coat and things. And he was in my head as the one who dressed like Rupert Bear. Uh, but it was, and I remember just, you would get these little glimpses of uh, history. And mm. I remember when Androzani was repeated, I remember seeing episode four of that. And I had no idea the Doctor was going to regenerate at the end of the Caves of Androzani. And then when it happened, it like seemed like... The, I knew about regeneration and how the Doctor yeah. would occasionally change and things, but to actually get to see it happen, mm. I remember running through to the kitchen as the end credits were on, saying to my mum, he changed, he changed! Because it's <laughs> like you had this very special glimpse of something that yeah. you know you, you, you would not normally get to see. So that 
mythological element of it, the sense that it had that history, was something I found really fascinating. I think it's also something that a lot of Doctor Who fans become interested in on the other side of the camera as well, not just the sort of mythological history of the fiction of the show, Mm -hmm. but also because it has that long production history. I think that's something a lot of fans, such as myself, become very interested in, almost in a similar kind of way to how you become interested in in the history of the fiction, if, if that makes sense. Yes. You're exactly right. For fans of my era, it was it was target novels, and then also the the making of Doctor Who, the book by Terence Sticks. But you know, there've there been many different versions of that over the years. The uh, and I suppose the longer the, the the show has gone on, the more history there's been to dive into in terms of behind the camera stuff as well. So, yeah, for me certainly that Five Faces of Doctor Who, which was 1981, the uh, when a lot of the or several, I suppose, of the original programs were shown going back into into the black and white era that was a very exciting moment for me too being able to see back in, into history so but yeah i mean a, a regeneration you weren't expecting i, I can't imagine how uh, how exciting that must have been yeah, it's funny. I, I suppose there's not a lot of Doctor Who, apart until we came to new Doctor Who, of course, but for, in terms of the classic series, there's not much of it that I was going into completely blind, as it were. Mm. But but that was definitely an instance where yeah, I had no idea what was going to happen at the end of that story. I remember thinking, when I did finally have all of the, uh, the missing episode CDs, and you know, like, I, I had, when I finally had in my possession, every single Doctor Who story that had ever been made, yeah. I just remember thinking about how when I was a little child, this, that would have absolutely blown my mind. <laughs> the idea that you could own and yeah. listen to a watch at any given moment you wanted. Every single Doctor Who story. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was just incredible. It would have absolutely boggled me as a child. Yeah, yeah it's funny, isn't it? I mean, the, these days, I guess people expect somehow everything to be available at the, at the click of a button. But but yes, it's, it's not going back many years when, when it would be a, astonishing, as you say, to be able to, to, to see that. What I guess sprung to mind looking back on things the other day as as I was starting my preparation for this talk was at the time these periods I suppose the seven years between the end of the McCoy era and then McGann coming back and then after that the seven years in in your story between the end of the McGann movie and the announcement that that Doctor Who was coming back to BBC One those two periods both seemed incredibly long I mean you know they seemed like sort of long and dark journeys with no Doctor Who for for a fan and yet now looking back on it what you know a couple of periods of seven years hardly seems all that much and the new show has now been back in total for for longer than that period between the end of the old series and and, and the return of the new nonetheless that you know that their periods I suppose that are very clearly in in the front of of people's minds but but I guess I mean as, as you started to say at the start of our talk that that second period the the one from the the TV movie onwards I mean it it started at a very low point I suppose in we we kind of felt oh great it's coming back oh no it hasn't been a success oh it'll never come back now and yet it, it wasn't such a long journey to oh my goodness it's back and it's never been as popular perhaps. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, as well as all the professionals, uh, people who are involved in the BBC and other aspects of the story, I've spoken to for the book. I've also interviewed one or two fans who are involved in, in different aspects of the story. One of them, Shannon Patrick Sullivan, who runs the Brief History of Time Travel site and originally set up the Doctor Who news page. Yeah, uh, he he says about how he feels that ninety-seven to ninety-nine period from a fan's point of view, was I think he describes it in the book as being the bleakest time for being a fan, when it really yeah. did seem as if it had had its chance and wasn't going to come back. And you're right about the sense of timescale. I mean, if you think now, I mean, it's just because we're all older, of course, but if you think 
seven years back is 2014 you think well that was five minutes ago 2014 that yeah. seems like no time at all but um yeah those seven years it does feel like a long period. i mean to me especially it felt like a long period because i it was a period in my life when uh, it was a huge amount of change going on as yeah. it would at that age when the tv movie was on i was 12 years old i was in my yeah. first year at secondary school year seven and then by the time the announcement came in 2003, I was a 19-year-old student in my second year at university. So that age from 12 to 19, obviously that feels like a, a hugely long period of time for you in your life because you change so much in that mm. period. So for me, it felt like a very long period of time. But also, because it is such a, a sort of formative time, I suppose, I felt like I was kind of you know, absorbing it all a lot. I feel as if the, the, the news stories and, and, and what was happening in Doctor Who terms in those years, I feel as if I've sort of retained that knowledge a lot more than I might have done of certain other periods, maybe more mm. recently in the show's history, just because it was... There are certain periods in your life, I think, aren't you, when you, you retain information. Like, for instance, I'm one of my other great interests, great fandoms, is uh, Formula One motor racing. Uh -huh. I remember when I was first becoming interested in that at the age of about 11. Mm. I remember learning, not kind of deliberately, I just kind of, kind of learnt it by looking into the history I learned you know all the, the Formula 1 world champions I could name them still going back to when it started in 1950 but if I sat down now and tried to learn a list of sort of 70 odd names of something <laughs> I'm not sure it would go in but because yeah. when you when you particularly when you're young when you're very interested yeah. in something um, it, you kind of absorb a lot about it by osmosis yes yes it's also well formative is probably the wrong word but it's an important period for me that, that this one we're talking about from 96 to 2003 because it, it was a period that I came back I suppose in, into being a fan so so for me by 96 I was in my late 20s I was married kind of got into a whole bunch of, of other interests and Doctor Who was no longer a, a going concern in the same way you described earlier on I was still a fan and as far as other people were concerned probably about as as mad a fan of Doctor Who as they could possibly imagine although yeah. you know of course <laughs> at a rather lower scale than than other people I guess I gave myself in my late 20s the license you know, to delve back into it for, it, for it to be okay to be a fan, not to be as embarrassed perhaps as, I, as I'd been previously. You, know, you, you might still have to sneak into WH Smith to pick up uh, <laughs> Doctor Who magazine, but you know, I, I thought, well, look, you know, I, I can do this. Uh, I, I might get the, the odd kind of puzzled look from the assistant, but, but so what? This is, this is who I am, this is what I do. And then I think also for me, as you, know, you mentioned the online stuff, there was also Big Finish at that stage as well coming back and telling new stories and I think all of that kind of got me caught up again once more in, in, into the whole story there's the old joke isn't there about Doctor Who fans going into Smith's to buy a copy of, uh, of DWM and sort of hiding it behind a copy of Reader's Wives or something <laughs> to, uh, to avoid the embarrassment I remember during the 50th anniversary I went to some of the screenings at the, the BFI in London and uh, I was lucky enough to go to the Remembrance of the Dalek screening I remember Ben Aronovich there in the Q&A afterwards being asked if he'd been a fan and uh, he said well I thought I was a fan but I was under the mistaken impression that being a Doctor Who fan just meant you enjoyed watching the programme <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 you'll always find someone who's more more obsessed than you you know no matter how obsessed you become i remember there's a i can't remember who said it it might have been gary Giller. it might have been because it's the sort of very perceptive thing he would say but maybe it's someone else but someone very cleverly once said something along the lines of every doctor who fan secretly deep down thinks that they understand the program slightly better than everybody else does and it's just being made for them personally and i think there's maybe a grain of truth in that somewhere yeah yeah sure so i guess from my own memory there were no shortages of plans to bring doctor who back to our screens in in one form or another either before or after the the tv movie 
And, and I guess we might think that we were quite lucky in the end that it came back in the form that it did, because I guess you know some of those other plans seem seem a lot more geeky and less mainstream than than the sort of fantastic vision that RTD had of of, of a, a popular family serial, as I suppose how it originally was in the first place. Yeah, or, or or even conversely, somewhat the other way as well, in the sense that there's a quote in the book from Rob Shearman. I didn't speak to Rob for the book, but there's an old quote I've got from that he posted on a forum years ago, just around the time the series was coming back, about mm. how lucky we were to have the revival in this form. And he talks about a revival attempt he'd been aware of a few years beforehand, which was, I mean, I don't think this was a, like a hugely serious thing. I think it was some people at the BBC just batting some ideas around. And I've not been able to get to the bottom of who it was who did this for this. This is one little thread I've not been able to quite get to the end of for the book. But Rob Shearman spoke about or wrote about how he'd been aware of this revival attempt a few years before the one that eventually happened, where the people behind it had decided that it would be it would be very strange enough putting for the audience if the Doctor or Doctor Who was um, an alien, so it'd be much better if it was much more like the Cushing movies and he was a human inventor who built this TARDIS thing in his back garden. Because mm. I, I think there was, and even in the um, in the, the Mark Gatiss, Clayton Hickman, Gareth Roberts proposal, and this is something that I spoke to Clayton about when I interviewed him for the book, there was a kind of no, fear the right word, maybe it is the right word, or, or an apprehension about, um, an apprehensiveness about alienating the audience. I mean, you've probably read Graham Kibble-White's piece about the, the Gatiss, Roberts, Hickman bid that he did for Doctor Who magazine back in 2016, mm-hmm. um, where he talked to them about it and reproduced some bits from their, their document and so forth. And the thing that Clayton Hickman talks about is is very much that they were very afraid of that whole arc of infinity thing, where within one of the cliffhangers, uh, the Doctor says, Omega controls the Matrix, and they hadn't explained who Omega was, what the Matrix was, <laughs> none of this had appeared in the programme for years, it was yeah. completely kind of, and they, they were very afra- and afraid of doing that kind of thing, and their proposal is almost... Uh, kind of goes much further away than, than Russell's did. I, I mean, it's that it's that middle ground, that sweet spot that Davis hit of being unashamedly Doctor Who, mm-hmm. not being... I mean, I know Davis used to say things like, you know, in, in, in the We're Going to Be Bigger Than Star Wars article from 1999, he talks about how you could never start the series on a pink planet with three moons, with a man in a cloak shaking his fist, making threats. Uh, mm. But he found that middle ground of not making it an impenetrable cult sort of show but also not being afraid of it being Doctor Who and and not being apologetic about it and and that's probably a very difficult balancing act to do but it's clear that obviously you had some of the you had Dan, Dan Friedman was explicitly aiming his proposal at that kind of BBC Two six o'clock cult slot I mean he said yes. that in his interviews with Doctor Who magazine at the time that was where he felt you could get it made and where it would go it didn't seemed to him that it, the BBC would be likely to recommission it as a big mainstream series. But on the Gatiss-led bid, which was very much a sort of reaction to Friedman's bid, and Clayton Hickman talks to me in the book about how they were they were sort of terrified of the idea that Dan Friedman might go in and give a, um, a, a good presentation to the BBC and get a commission. And so they felt they really had to pr- provide an alternative suggestion. But theirs was very much the other way. It was this... Um, set in a, a small town wasn't it or, or a rural village and the doctor runs an antique shop and he doesn't really remember who he is or or and uh, it doesn't have any of the kind of background to it the either side of it there's the the, the, the very much the, the, the cult way of doing it or trying to do it mainstream and non-threatening and not have any elements that might put off the audience and whereas davis kind of went right down the middle between those two schools of thinking i think yes 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing I have in the back of my mind, I mean, it, there was something in the air in that period of, of bringing back shows. And the one that, that particularly springs to mind is Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, which was, I mean, I guess quite mainstream in, in the sense that it had a, you know, it had sort of a, a famous cast and, and it was, you know, there must have been a decent budget behind it. But equally, it wasn't, you know, it, it was quite geeky and and in that kind of cult sort of tradition i suppose rather than um you know for 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 a big audience although it was in a prime time bbc one saturday evening slot interestingly. yeah and yeah the randall and hopkirk revival saturday nights some episodes directed by rachel talali some episodes written by mark gatiss and gareth roberts music by murray gold tom baker is in it yes so i mean it's almost tempting i don't think this is the case because it was an independent production it was made by working title Mm-hmm. But it's almost tempting to wonder if it, if it were ended up going into that slot that Doctor Who would have ended up going in if Peter Salmon and Mal Young and Patrick Spence had been able to launch the Russell T. Davis written series when they'd wanted to, when they first had those discussions with Davis at the end of the 90s. It's almost tempting mm. to wonder if it if it ended up in that slot that Doctor Who would have gone in if the Davis series had been launched when they first wanted to launch it. Mm. So, Paul, I mean, I know you've spoken to a lot of people in the course of uh, of your book. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about you know how you got in touch with people and and how enthusiastic they were about telling their stories? Yeah, I was very lucky, really. I got to speak to almost everybody that I asked. The only two people I sort of major figures who I didn't get to speak to were Russell T Davis, who uh, politely declined my my uh, attempt to ask for an interview, which would be obviously fine. But I mean, uh, the thing about not getting to speak to Russell is that it was almost the least damaging of of the major figures not to have in some ways, because he has yeah. done so many interviews and written so much about this down the years. There's a mm-hmm. lot of his that I can quote from. Obviously, I don't just steal other people's work, but with proper you know attribution within the bounds of fair use, there's a lot of him. So he is definitely a presence through the book mm-hmm. and, and what he felt, both at the time and subsequently. There's some very interesting bits. There's a, a great little interview he did with Cult Times in 2000, where they were asking him about what the latest was with his you know involvement with Doctor Who. And uh, he says in that... Obviously, this is an exaggeration, but it sort of reflects some of what maybe the outside view of the BBC drama department was at the time, where he says uh, in this interview in, in May 2000, I think it was, he spoke to them, if it did happen, I would only write it. I would never produce for the BBC. I would rather die. So it just goes to show, because the BBC drama department had been in a bit of a state in the late 90s. And yeah, it shows you how maybe not necessarily keen to work in-house for the BBC people were at that point. But so it's quoting him from the time and, and from later. And the only other person who I didn't really particularly get to speak, who I really wanted to speak to was Peter Salmon, who mm-hmm. was the controller of BBC One in the late 90s, who had along with Mal Young and particularly Patrick Spence tried to get a a Russell-led series off the ground at that point but sadly they couldn't because BBC Worldwide's film ambitions but yeah in Mm. terms I I was very lucky that everyone else basically said yes you know I I don't know why because I'm a complete nobody you know (laughs) so that I wrote to people and just explain what I was doing I was writing this book that explained this particular story and I'd very much like to speak to them and would they and and almost everyone was, was keen immediately the only person who sort of wanted to have a think about it was was Mal Young and Mal Young hasn't often spoken about Doctor Who I think he's done one podcast interview down the years about it 
and uh, he's spoken about it at perhaps one or two industry events. I know he did an interview, I think, for the Royal Television Society where he spoke a bit about it, but he hasn't often spoken about his involvement. Mm-hmm. So I approached him and uh, he said he'd like to think about it, but then eventually he got back to me and said yes, and I ended up doing a very long interview. Now, we, 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 we had a great long chat, about two hours, I think, we ended up speaking for. So it was fascinating to hear his, his recollections and thoughts. But yes, it was mostly just either approaching people via, via social media or via companies that they were now working for. And yeah, just explain in some cases even finding out what companies people now worked at and just guessing what their email addresses would be from the normal format of those companies emails and dropping them a line and yeah nobody said go in i had a few people who just very politely said that they didn't want to speak to dan friedman said that he feels he's said everything he wants to say about doctor who down the years but yeah most people were were very happy to, to talk and chat so i was, I was very lucky a lesson to us all, perhaps, that if you've got an idea or if you, you, you've got a passion, it's, you know, it's worth following it up because the worst that can happen is that people will say no. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, you know, nobody can have you arrested for asking them for an interview. <laughs> yeah. So it seemed almost in that period, I mean, there were, there were a number of different strands of Doctor Who at the time. So there was, as you mentioned, there, were the, there was the online stuff, the, the, the Death Comes to Time and a couple of, of other serials after the Schalke one, I think, was, was the, the last of those. There was, there was Big Finish as well, and Big Finish did, I suppose, come into the online to some extent as well. And then, of course, there, were, there was a, an ongoing series of, of novels as well. It some, sometimes felt like they were almost at, uh, at odds with each other, in, or, or at least not all pulling fully in the same direction. I mean, how, how important do you think that, that those different strands were in the Returnal? Do you think they, that they were sort of just incidental? Well, I think obviously the particularly important one, as many people will know, is the online strand, because obviously Death Comes to Time, very successful, and then, as you say, the online team at the BBC, the cult website, they teamed up with Big Finish to do real-time, and then the, the Paul McGann version of Sharda. Yeah. And then each of those had had illustrations by Lee Sullivan, and they'd had increasingly ambitious animated elements, things fading yep. in and out, going across the screen, that kind of thing. And so then they get to 2003, or it might have been late 2002 when they started looking at it, but around that time they decide, could we actually make a fully animated Doctor Who? And so this is how Scream of the Shalker comes about. Right. And Scream of the Shalker becomes very important in the story because while they were first looking into making that, there was this whole almost like an urban myth at the time, even within the BBC itself, even if you speak to high-powered BBC executives like Mel Young, Lorraine Hegacy, there was this idea that somehow the BBC didn't have the rights to make Doctor Who, or that the rights to Doctor Who had somehow become complicated or messy. Uh And the online team were aware of this, and they decided, well, if we're going to make our own fully animated Doctor Who serial, we'd better check to make sure we have the rights to do it. Yeah, And the other reason they did this is because people kept emailing them during this time to say, I've heard the BBC don't have the rights to make Doctor Who anymore. Because <laughs> Lorraine Hegacy would do interviews. She was an interview she did with uh, on Simon Mayo's programme on Five Live in September right. 2002, where she yeah. says, she out and out says, I'd like to commission a new series of Doctor Who. We've been having some early discussions with people about it, but the rights situation is complicated you know so we might not be able to do it and Doctor Who fans would hear this and and, and it just confused us all at the time I remember because we knew pretty much Doctor Who fans who, who were interested or cared in any way about this knew that Doctor Who had been created on BBC time by BBC employees at the behest of BBC management 
So how could the BBC not have the rights to make <laughs> yes. it? So people would keep emailing the, the Doctor Who website about this, and they wanted to check it themselves anyway to make sure they could make Schalke. And so a researcher on the site, a man called Daniel Judd, who I've interviewed for the book, he was given the task by James Goss, who ran the site, to establish what the rights situation with Doctor Who was. And so he asked all the people, went to the BBC Rights Group, BBC Worldwide, BBC Films, and what Daniel Judd established was that there wasn't any problem the BBC did own the rights to Doctor Who. There was no issue with the rights. There were certain writers, particularly obviously Terry Nation with the Daleks, owned elements that they had created yeah. for the programme. But the actual format of Doctor Who was not in question. Mm-hmm. So they put up this story on the 21st of August 2003 saying, lots of people have been emailing us about, has the BBC lost the rights to make Doctor Who? We've looked into it and no, BBC could commission a new series of Doctor Who tomorrow if it wanted to. And then four days later, on the 25th of August 2003, Lorraine Hegarty did an interview at the uh, Edinburgh Television Festival with The Guardian, yeah. where she spoke about how, again, she mentioned she'd like to bring back Doctor Who, but the right situation was too complicated to do that at the moment. And so because these were only four days apart, a lot of Doctor Who fans thought, well, hang on, mm-hmm. this can't be right. So they started emailing in, and eventually <laughs> Lorraine Hegarty's office asked the BBC Online team for, a, for their research, and so Martin Tricky and James Goss who ran the site, went over and spoke to her. So it was. It quickly became apparent that the BBC... I mean, there's a quote from Martin Tricky when I spoke to him, who was sort of ultimately in charge of the Doctor Who website. He said something like, so at this point, when, when the BBC, when BBC television suddenly turned around and said, well, shit, why aren't we making Doctor Who? <laughs> uh, now, the timeline is slightly complicated here because we know that Russell T. Davis's agent, uh, Bethan Evans, was first approached by Jane Tranter. Apparently Jane Tranter came up to Bethan Evans at the launch for the Canterbury Tales TV series and said, Russell, Doctor Who, we're doing it, tell him. And that was on the 6th of August, that was earlier in that month. So the right. timeline is slightly complicated, but mm. it, it does seem that it was the online team who established that there wasn't an issue with the Doctor Who rights. This whole myth that was within the BBC and outside the BBC the rights had somehow gone or were mm. complicated wasn't the case and sort of opened the doors to, to everything that was, was to follow mm. it, it does seem that there was an obsession with making a film in, in the 90s is, is, that, is that a money thing? I mean, it, it was the idea that they could make so much more money out of a film than out of a series that that's why they went in that direction? Well certainly BBC Worldwide were very keen on making a film. BBC Films itself which was run by a man called David Thompson who I've interviewed for the book David Thompson says it was very much more driven by Worldwide than it was films. I should explain for anyone who's who's not familiar, BBC Worldwide was the BBC's commercial arm it uh, mm-hmm. was the part of the BBC that uh, existed as a, a as a separate company but fully owned by the BBC, and it would release all the sort of home media, VHS DVDs, and tie-in merchandise, and it would sell programmes overseas, and all that kind of thing. So BBC Worldwide was very much a sort of money-making operation, the BBC, that would earn money for it on top of what came in from the licence fee. And so they were very interested in doing a film. BBC Films, the way David Thompson tells it, they kind of went along with it, they were happy to to go along with the idea and, and help Worldwide out with it, but it was much more driven by Worldwide than it was by films. BBC Worldwide was run at that time by a couple of guys called Rupert Gavin and Mike Phillips. I've spoken to both of them for the book. And they are—they they were just very key. They just felt Doctor Who was a, was a, was a, a property, to use that horrible word, that, that would, could be very commercial. They felt that BBC films at the time were very art house, very indie, and they felt that Doctor right. Who was, a, was, a, was something that would make them do a, would help them do a, a big commercial. Because if you want to 
start trying to make big commercial films, mm. you may as well use something that a name that's already known and a property that BBC already owns. So the thing that I'm not quite able to get to, but because it, it seems oddly, and I don't know why or how, it seems as if BBC Worldwide had sort of ownership, as they were in control. Right. And nobody seems to know quite why or how this happened. BBC Worldwide denies. Rupert Gavin says, it was never, to my knowledge, ever put to me that we at Worldwide were stopping BBC Television from making a television series. There just wasn't one. But everyone on the BBC Television side, Lorraine Hegesy, Jane Tranter, Alan Yentob, Mal Young, they all say, yeah, Worldwide, for some reason, someone at some point had given Worldwide sort of ownership. They had say over what happened to Doctor Who, and they were obsessed mm. with the idea of making a film. And eventually, uh, they just got Jane Tranter, who was head of drama, and Lorraine Hegesy, who was control of BBC One, they got sick of waiting for Worldwide to try and sort a film deal out. And uh, Alan Yentob, he was, at that stage, he had this job title, uh, Director of Drama, Entertainment and Children's. He was sort of a figurehead right. for those three departments. But he was on the BBC board. He had kind of overall, as Jane Tranter described it, he was kind of the uber head of BBC films. And yeah. uh, Jane Tranter and Rain Hexy went to him and said, look, can you sort this out? Can you take this off Worldwide and give it back to us? And uh, Alan Yentob went to Worldwide and said, look, you've had enough time now you haven't made a film we're going to go forward with the television version so yeah it's it's it was we could have had if worldwide hadn't been a factor if they hadn't been trying to make a film and if they hadn't mm. for some reason had control we could have had a doctor who tv series as early as as 2000 maybe even 1999 but more likely 2000 but mm. it took that time for the people to be in place to to really want to make it and to be able to to wrest control back from worldwide although as I say, I should put in that, that, that Rupert Gavin, who was the chief executive of Worldwide, insists in the book that it was never said to him that they were stopping a television series from being made. That's not his recollection, but it is the recollection of everybody on the television yeah. side. Yeah. So, so I guess we could say that, that whether or not that was true, it you know the, the fact that it was the perception that it was true meant mm. that that it was it was stopping something from happening. I mean, it's it's fascinating as a fan because you know the the, the legend always is that that the corporation you know fell out of love with doctor who in the late 80s i mean that's that's undeniably true and yet all these senior people in the organization 10 years later seem to have a deep well of of affection and and enthusiasm for it i don't know whether whether it was it was just the additional space or whether this is a different generation of people who've grown up watching it and, and and thus more affectionate memory of it I think that's definitely true. I mean, I, I think by the time you start getting into into the late 90s, you do have this group of executives coming in, a changing of the guard, as it were, who, um, who were people who'd grown up with the show, been young enough to, to grow up with the show. It's not always the case. I mean, Mal Young, for instance, was never particularly a fan himself. In the 60s, mm-hmm. he was much more into the Jerry Anderson shows and, and American imports oh, yeah. like Batman and things. But he talks about how his nephews were both very big fans of Doctor His young nephews, a bit like me, they they were fans in the early 90s just through watching it on video. And he mm. talks about how he, he felt that any show which could engender such enthusiasm, even when it wasn't on anymore, must have some sort of special pulling power to it. But certainly there's, um, I mean, one of the, probably the, the biggest ally Doctor Who had, certainly at BBC One, from in the early 2000s was someone fandom hasn't he really been particularly well of a lady called helen o'reilly who's a a, a television executive she's an an irish lady and uh she talks about she was basically lorraine hegas's sort of number two at bbc one she was had had this job she was the channel executive at bbc one so she was lorraine hegas's main main sort of deputy as it were 
Yeah. She was on the BBC One team, involved in you know what they were commissioning, what they were scheduling, all that sort of thing. And she'd been a, as a little girl growing up in Ireland, she'd been a huge fan of Doctor Who. And she says to me, they were they were non license fee paying viewers of Doctor Who because they could get it from the the overspill of the transmissions from Wales. So she, she growing up in Dublin, I think she grew up. She would watch Doctor Who as, as a child. Right. And and she had a huge love of the series, and affection for the series. And she mm. talks about how when she got the job at BBC One in two thousand and two. One of the things she had on her desk was this little toy Dalek, a toy talking Dalek. And every so often it would come up in meetings, you know, could they do Doctor Who and so forth. And apparently every day when Lorraine Hegarty got in in the morning, Helen would, would push a button on this talking Dalek and it would spout some phrase at Lorraine Hegarty as she came in. And the story Helen tells is that um, eventually this kind of ground Lorraine Hegarty down and she just came storming out of her office one morning and said, I'm not having you push that button. I'm sick of you pushing that button and making that Dalek talk at me. Find out who owns the rights. We're going to look into this. And that was around the same time that the online team were already looking into the rights. But uh, Helen talks as, as well about how they were convinced that the rights were, in her words, you know, locked away in some Hollywood vault. Because yeah. there, there was this kind of myth that... I think the, the, the myth that was around at the time, uh, particularly among fans, but also, as I say, within the BBC, was this idea that somehow the BBC had accidentally sold the rights to Universal, not just an option when they'd made the TV movie. They'd actually right. sold the rights to Universal. That was a, a sort of popular myth that went around at the time. But that mm. was never the case. I mean, you can see the BBC... Uh, Universal had an option originally till the end of 96, and then they extended it to the end of 97, and then the rights reverted back to the BBC. That was something that was written about at the time. It was something the BBC mm. said again in, in 2000, in, in the statement that's that's reproduced at the end of Philip Siegel and Gary Russell's Regeneration book. So that was all kind of out there, but for some reason this... Um, yeah, this myth emerged that somehow, mm. I think because people sort of found it believable that someone at the BBC might have been stupid enough to accidentally sell off the family silver, <laughs> people kind of liked that idea that something yeah. that ridiculous could have happened. Mm. The other thing that, that seems remarkably enduring from that period was was sort of newspaper accounts. You, you, you'd often see it coming up in newspapers oh, Doctor Who's coming back, but invariably there'd be some kind of joke figure that they would have selected as the Doctor. I mean, I, I presume this is just in the imaginations of newspaper editors or writers rather than anything that, that you know genuine that they'd heard. But, you know, I don't know, you'd, you'd hear either American stars or maybe even Paul Daniels, I think. was. I well, that's the one Julie them. Gardner talks about. That's the one. I think that was more from after the announcement had come. And I think the okay. the, the Mirror or the Sun had said Paul Daniels. And, but she talks about that as being very instructive because obviously Julie Gardner didn't know a huge amount about Doctor Who. She wasn't sort of, um, you know, had grown up as a fan uh, uh, as we had and other people had. But she talked mm. about seeing that piece about Paul Daniels and uh, talking to Russell about it and feeling about how that perception was that it was, it was light entertainment rather than drama. Yeah. But yeah, you would often get these. I mean, there's a couple of them I talk about in the book the, the the BBC website would would wearily kind of report on these saying no Sean Bean isn't the doctor stop emailing us saying why aren't you reporting that Sean Bean is the doctor we've been to BBC publicity and they, they're getting quite tired of us going to them now and they've assured us and like Timothy Spool was another one Anthony Head was another one that would come up because when Dan Friedman I mean the Anthony Head one is I think from a couple of things because when Dan Friedman was putting together his bid for the show, he did go over to America and spent a few days with the uh, the Buffy and Angel right. uh, writers, sort of seeing how they did things. I think he kind of over exaggerated that into you know 
I'm working with the writers of Buffy and Angel on the revival of Doctor Who, which he wasn't. He he had certainly been over to see them and and yeah. sort of consult. I spoke to one of the Buffy writers, a guy called David Fury, who was linked with Dan Friedman's proposal at the time, and he says, "Oh yeah, Dan did come over and see us and spent a few days with us, but you know we were never involved in actually any formal way of putting this thing. But that and because at the time as well, the BBC was involved with talking to the Buffy people about doing a, a spin-off in the UK based around Anthony Head's character." Giles, a show called Ripper, which, which much like Doctor Who rumours at the time, dragged on for ages and never happened. Uh, so Anthony Head was, was someone else that would get any actor or actress under the sun. I mean, when David Thompson did his announcement at Cannes in 98 that they were looking at doing a Doctor Who film, the press was full of, uh, oh, it could be a female Doctor. They talk about Helen Baxterdale and Daniela Nardini and people like this. So yeah, any, mm. any performer under the sun was probably uh, mentioned at some point or another. Yes. Interesting fascinating maybe just entirely coincidental that your story about the return of doctor who under russell t davis should be released at the time that doctor who's going to return under russell t davis again yeah and once again the announcement comes on came on the last friday in september and once again it referred to a series which is due to be on uh, the year after next yeah so there were a lot of parallels there uh, yeah it was completely coincidental obviously the book was all written and uh, and uh, i'd uh, signed the agreement with 10 acre and it, we were working on the the final manuscript I and mean, when suddenly this and Stuart who runs 10 acre sent me an email that day I, I'd seen the news yeah I was at work actually and I saw it come down weirdly they sent it out under embargo about 15 minutes before it was announced and I thought well, what's <laughs> what's the point of releasing that under embargo but anyway so I saw it come down on the wires right. Russell T Davis to return to Doctor I thought blimey and then shortly after it came out Stuart who runs 10 acre sent me an email saying I think your book may need a new ending now so, so we do mention it obviously obviously it doesn't directly relate to the story told in this book, but no. it is interesting how this past of Doctor Who is now going to echo on into its future. But uh, I think I did get lucky in the sense that I was able to speak to Julie Gardner and Jane Tranter, who run Bad Wolf, which is the company yeah. that's now going to make Doctor Who. I spoke to them last year, and mm. I suspect if I were writing the book now, because <laughs> they're now involved in Doctor Who again, they might feel yes. as if they might, might not be able to speak to me. Whereas last year, they were they were both very happy to speak to me. So I, I think I got lucky with the timing there on that one. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's often been this thought that... You know, in in the way we've had these fantastic Blu-ray sets from the original series, that the new series might be ripe for those kinds of stories to start coming out too. But I guess the fact that now that, that Russell and his team are going to be back producing new episodes perhaps pushes that window a little bit further down the road when they're going to be prepared to be a little bit more candid perhaps about, yeah, about, about, what, about actually what did happen to that exploding sofa and all these sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. So look, I mean, I don't want to spoil the story that you've got to tell us in the book, but was there anything that surprised you, I suppose, as, as you were researching, anything that, that about the story that you hadn't expected to, to uncover? Uh, I think the one thing that did particularly surprise me that I had no idea about, and I don't think we'd ever heard anything about before, was how Russell T. Davis's first meeting with the BBC about Doctor Who came about. Uh, if you're interested in this story, you'll probably know that he had a meeting with them in the late 90s mm -hmm. with a man called Patrick Spence, who was, um, it was the BBC drama series department, which was run, run by Mal Young. And Mal's right. number two, his head of development, was a man called Patrick Spence. And if you've read much about this, you've probably seen Davis refer in various interviews and articles to the fact that he had this meeting with Patrick Spence, but nothing in the end came of it because of BBC Worldwide's film ambitions. Right. And the way that Davis has always told the, told the story is that his friend Tony Wood was working in the drama series department, heard that they were keen on reviving Doctor Who, and arranged for Davis to have a meeting 
with Spence. I thought, well, Spence has never spoken about this. So I tried sending him an email. He's the creative director of ITV's in-house production arm these days, ITV Studios. Yeah. So I thought, well, he's a big television executive. He's had hundreds of meetings down the years. He's A, not going to, not going to want to speak to me. And B, he's never going to remember this one 20-minute meeting he had with Russell T. Davis 20-odd years ago. But he emailed me back saying, uh, yeah, he's very happy to speak. He, he congratulated me on my detective work in finding out that he'd been involved in this Doctor <laughs> Who effort. And I had to confess to him that, well, Russell's just mentioned it a few times down the years so, and then he said uh, oh well if Russell's talked about it I'm very happy to go on the record then and uh, yeah he did a great interview telling me all about how that came about which which came about in a surprising fashion to do with an, a, a completely different television series altogether a rather lamented and forgotten BBC drama of the late 90s but uh, I, I think you'll have to read the book to find yeah. out that full story but that did surprise me that that was that was certainly a story I'd never heard before I don't think Patrick Spence has ever told his side of that story before and so that was that was really interesting and other things as well like I spoke to the, the guys who originally set up the BBC Doctor Who website uh, obviously later on it was taken on by the cult team people like Rob Francis and Martin Tricking, James Goss and so forth but it was set up by a couple of guys in the very early days of BBC Online a commissioning editor called Mark Rogers and a man who built the sites called Damien Rafferty mm-hmm. and basically the story they tell is that uh, they would get the BBC would get lots of emails and letters from people saying when are you going to bring back Doctor Who and it was felt as, as a kind of sop to, to them the BBC should have a Doctor Who website which they set up and uh, and yeah Damien Rafferty said talk to me all about how that got set up because they weren't supposed to run websites they were supposed to set them up and hand them over to the production team to run so they would set up say the watchdog website and then they would hand it over to the watchdog production team when they would update it but because there was no doctor who production team they had to they and or or for any of the cult shows because the rest of them were imports there was no um production team they could hand it on to so they ended up running these cult sites themselves which ended up becoming quite successful and then of course later on the the bbc cult team was set up to to run these sites but so yeah bits and pieces like that i don't think i don't think we've ever ever heard that story before about how the doctor website was Hmm. was originally set up and uh yeah just people like like helen o'reilly who i mentioned who whose stories we, we haven't often heard in fandom. No. There's some, some of these hidden people who were involved, but we, we haven't heard much from. And, of course, the guys who ran BBC Worldwide as well, who I mentioned earlier, Rupert Gavin and Mike Phillips, just hearing from them and, and their side of the story about about the film effort and whether or not it, it stopped a TV show being made. It's, uh, it's, not, it's good to hear their side of the story as well and give them a chance to, uh, to, to, to defend themselves, as it were. Yeah, and I suppose in some ways, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit like the story of the origins of of Doctor Who, which has been picked over many times now, but I, I think every time I hear it from a different source, there's you know, that there's something else that that somebody's found out, another name or a, or another meeting or something else that happened back in 1962 or three or something like that that adds to the to the picture. So it's it's always it's always good to to, to get you know more information and to see a fuller picture. Yeah, well, one of my absolute favourite things in all of Doctor Who nonfiction is in in the first Doctor Handbook from the mid 90s. Uh, that production diary section, which is an amazing piece of work. Yeah. And particularly the early bit of it from the spring of 62 up to when the, the show goes on air and just piecing together all those documents. And, and this whole book started, really, with my attempt to do that for the 9603 period. I wrote, I put a timeline together, very, right. much, very much inspired by that production diary section in the first Doctor Handbook. Yeah. Just using all the sources, all the interviews that I could find, all, all the articles and documentaries and things. And, and I put together a, a timeline of 96 to 03, which there's a version of 
the, the back of the book still there's a timeline section at the back so yeah, that's still in there and I put that online a few years ago and lots of people were very nice about it and, and said how much they'd enjoyed it and that first got me thinking oh there could be a book in this and then eventually I got around to writing it yeah fantastic so I mean you've given us plenty of, of reasons to want to read the book already in this discussion and, and a couple of teasers um, is there anything else that you'd like to say to encourage people to part with their money and, and, and to pre-order a copy <laughs> well I mean I just think anyone who's interested in the how of Doctor Who coming back it doesn't tell the story of the production of the show because mm. I felt that that had been done very well by lots of other people in great detail already and as you mentioned, you know, everything up to the TV movie had been told very, very well. Books like, you know, the Regeneration book and all this kind of thing. But I just felt that period in the middle, it's such a fascinating period as well. And it, particularly if you're interested in the history of the BBC and the history of British broadcasting and that wider context. Because the sources that talk about the BBC's history in that period don't really particularly talk about its influence on Doctor Who. And the sources mm. that talk about Doctor Who in that period don't particularly often look into the wider context of what was going on at the BBC at that time. So hopefully if you're interested in the wider BBC and and how that influences what happens in Doctor Who, particularly in this period, which is a fascinating one as we're changing from Bert to Dyke and all this kind of thing is going on. Yeah. Hopefully if, if that's the sort of thing that interests you, hopefully you'll be interested in this book. It is it is fascinating, isn't it, with the BBC? There's There's always something going on there's always some crisis every few years it is funny as well how this is a period when a lot of the bbc's programming was moving over to independent production when the show stopped in 1989 it seemed very clear that its future would lay in it being made for the bbc by an independent company yeah but when it came back in 03 julie gardner and jane tran to talk about this in the book julie gardner says that there was the, there was no way the bbc would have let it be made by an independent at that point it was too much a part of the BBC's heritage and history. And it's fascinating how 89, 90, it seems, well, Doctor Who's only ever going to come back if it's made by an independent company. And it's now mm. it's now taken another 32 years, will have taken 34 years by the time this happens, for, for, yeah. for the BBC, for Doctor Who finally not to be made by the BBC. I mean, we are we are going through another changing epoch of, of Doctor Who's history now. I mean, I know it's been... Uh, I know it hasn't been made by the public service part of the BBC for four years now, obviously, since the whole studio split. So it it hasn't been made by the BBC, quote-unquote, for the last four years, but it's been made by BBC Studios for the last four years. But now it's it's not going to be made by by the BBC at all. It's going to be made for the BBC by someone else, and that's a a whole other fascinating change that, uh, that that will doubtless be a fascinating book from someone else someday but uh uh hopefully this this explains a bit about that sort of behind the scenes thing and those sorts of changes that were taking place you know in the bbc and and how programs were made by and for the bbc during this particular time period fantastic well look paul thanks thanks so much for spending the time to talk to me today uh, it's you know it's, it's great to talk to you and, and and to learn a bit more about your book and and, and some of the stories behind it and i i look forward to to reading it uh, very much when it comes out so yeah, so, so so thanks very much. Well, no, thank you very much for having me, and I I hope uh, that you enjoy the book, and I hope anyone else listening to this who who buys a copy enjoys it as well. Indeed, indeed. Emily, have we got a podcast for our listeners? You might want to try that line again, Richard. What? Oh, yeah.
Emily, have we got a podcast for our listeners? You bet. Hello and welcome to the pilot episode of If It's Hurting, It's Not Working. Hello, I'm Richard. And I'm Emily. And we're your hosts for a new podcast about working. Most of us have to work for a living, and many of us work for at least eight hours a day and at least five dates a week. That's an awful lot of time in our lives to invest in anything, particularly if we're unhappy, bored or unfulfilled in our work. So we're hoping that this podcast, being all about work, why we work, how we work and what makes a great job, will be useful to you all. Yeah, and and we're also going to talk about what makes a great workplace and how we can turn things around when we're not enjoying our work and perhaps in the end how we can all make our work a bit better. Have you, what, what's your greatest job that you've had, Richard? So we talked a little bit about that, what makes a, a great job great and what makes a bad job bad. But, I mean, but often it's it's not the content of the job itself, is it? It's the, it's the stuff that goes alongside it. Terrible jobs. Well, I've got a couple of them. When somebody has belief in you, it's amazing how much more you can achieve and, and, and what, a, what a massive difference it makes, I think, to, you, to your outlook and your output. That's so true. Having people behind you that believe that you can do it and support you and want to see you succeed. What's the secret of your success, Emily? The secret of my success would probably be my sheer determination. I think that that's my secret to success.